Hello, everybody. Recording live from somewhere. Welcome to the Sickle Cycle Podcast, a monthly conversation about sickle cell disease. I'm your host, Charlotte Curtis. Welcome to our September episode. September is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, and we are excited to welcome Dr. Wanda Witten-Sherney, who is a general pediatrician and CMO of SCDAA Michigan Chapter. Dr. Sherney, welcome. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Tell me more about your background, more about your educational background. What led you to sickle cell? All right. Well, you know, I guess I really have to say uh, what led me to sickle cell was my dad. But what kept me with sickle cell was my patients. You know, Mm -hmm. so my dad actually was one of the primary founders of the National Sickle Cell Disease Association, which is now called the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. And he started the Comprehensive Sickle Cell Clinic at Children's Hospital. And he did that because he was concerned that patients with cancer were getting multidisciplinary care and patients with sickle cell disease were not. And so he hired two nurse practitioners um, and Dr. Ingrid Sarnak, who was my colleague and taught me a lot of what I know about sickle cell disease, um, to work at that clinic. And that way, the patients would be able to see the same person over and over and get continuity of care. Also, um, he got the resources to have a social worker and a full-time psychologist. So we could really be a true medical home. We uh, we do regular primary care as well as specialized sickle cell care. So, and then the other thing that my dad did was he started this community-based organization on the Lodge Freeway in Detroit called the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, Michigan chapter. And always I was working kind of alongside my dad, he would always say, well, Wanda, when I'm not here anymore, I'm going to need you to take over at the SCDAA. And I would always say, no, Dad, that's not what I'm planning to do. I'm a pediatrician and I enjoy what I do. And I'm taking care of kids at the Sickle Cell Clinic. And uh, But when my dad passed away, there was really nobody to provide leadership at the Michigan chapter of the SCDAA. So I decided, you know, in fact, maybe I could do more for patients living with sickle cell disease from this standpoint than at the clinic but I really hated to give up seeing patients full time. So what I decided to do is just see patients one day a week. And so, and that has gradually weaned down to every other week and and starting in October, I won't be seeing patients at all. And that's just because there's so much work to be done in terms of, you know, serving our primary mission at the SCDAA Michigan chapter, which is to maximize the quality of life of individuals living with sickle cell disease. So that is where I am putting all my efforts now. And uh, once again, what really keeps me motivated to do this work is just um, seeing my patients and how um, strong they are and how, you know, how helpful it can be to give them the knowledge that they need in order to take really good care of themselves. You mentioned that through your father's work and that he had a psychologist that was there to look at some of the issues impacting the sickle cell community. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, I think my, my sister happens to be a clinical psychologist. So we've always, you know, our family has kind of been, you know, that's always been a particularly important subject with us. And if you just think about the challenges that individuals living with sickle cell disease face on a day-to-day basis, you know, if you think about the hallmark of sickle cell disease is pain. 
And this is unpredictable, excruciating pain that comes out of nowhere and but is frequently brought on by stress. You know, so, you know, you have this big exam that you need to take and you get stressed out over it and then you end up in a pain crisis and then you can't even take the exam. You know, so just constant interruptions in every aspect of your life. And, you know, I've heard people start to say that maybe some individuals living with sickle cell disease might really have post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, because of the constant stress. You know, and another big issue is the way that our patients are treated in the emergency room. And even though the hallmark of sickle cell disease is pain, frequently, especially adults, when they get when they go to the emergency room, they're looked at as, quote unquote, drug seeking, you know, or wanting to get narcotics to get high or either to sell their narcotics. And I think that, you know, that in addition to the fact that there are not enough adult providers that are, number one, capable of and number two, willing to take care of adult patients with sickle cell disease. And I think the willing to part has to do with the fact that it's a very complicated disease, both medically, because of course, you know, it's a disease of blocked blood vessels and every part of your body. And so the red blood cells are what deliver the oxygen and every part of your body needs oxygen. So therefore sickle cell disease affects every part of the body, you know? So when you're caring for a patient, you have to deal with heart problems and liver problems and kidney problems and eye problems and again, every part of the body. And then in addition to that, it's a psychosocially complicated disease because of the things that I've mentioned and the stresses that happen. And and this is a disease that really affects the entire family. You know, when a, a patient is having a painful crisis, I think parents also suffer some psychological pain while they're watching their uh, loved one go through an episode. Do you have any tips to help people in terms of dealing with the trauma and dealing with the stress of, of battling this illness? Well, you know, Charlotte, I have lots of tips and I actually, I do a uh, workshop called Heal the Healer. And uh, what we talk about is all the various relaxation techniques and stress relief techniques. And and we talk about what works for you. And then we go around the room and everybody talks about what might be helpful. But, you know, uh, well, let me back up and say that uh, one of the first things that can be helpful is is speaking with a mental health professional, you know, and uh, getting you know, getting some suggestions there and talking out some of the problems and working out some of your issues. But in addition to that, I mean, things like yoga, Tai Chi, aromatherapy, um, getting a massage, you know, um, you have to, for me, I get my stress relief in the uh, springtime from gardening. I'm an avid gardener and just having my hands in the dirt just, you know, really helps me a lot, you know? So, um, artwork, you know, like art therapy, music therapy. So just all kinds of things to um, manage your stress. And also biofeedback is something else, something that uh, some patients have found to be helpful. What's biofeedback? Biofeedback is a mechanism by which your body is connected to a machine that will allow you to like, let's say you want to control your blood pressure uh, or your heart rate. And so the machine measures your heart rate, and then you can physically do relaxation techniques to try to bring your heart rate or your blood pressure down. And then the machine gives you feedback as it's going down, and that allows you, people can learn, actually learn how to modify, you know, certain aspects of their health by, by this biofeedback technique. said a lot, and so I want to unpack that a little bit more. Okay. So 
growing up in Michigan, you worked heavily with your father. Did you always know that you wanted to work in the medical field? You know, that's funny because as a little kid, people would always say, you're going to be a doctor like your father? You know, and I always I would always say, no, 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 no. You know, that's not not what I'm interested in. My favorite subject in school was always math. And I kind of got interested in computers. And I went to the University of Michigan to undergrad. And I went when I got there, I was a math major. Charlotte, I took that first calculus and analytics geometry class. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is not for me. <laughs> and I said, you know, I. I, I literally, this is what happened. I feel like I woke up and all of a sudden I had all these science classes. And then the next thing I knew I was in medical school. So I think, you know, subliminally, it was just like all, always on my mind. And, and, and then um, I finished my work at University of Michigan and decided that I wanted to go to Howard to medical school. And in fact, I got offered a full academic scholarship to go to University of Michigan Medical School. But I really wasn't happy at the University of Michigan and I had not had the HBCU um, experience. And my dad was so happy because he went to Meharry at a time where that was just about the only place he could go. You know, and he said, well, you know, Wanda, a lot of the really uh, top level black students are choosing not to go to HBCUs because um, they can go other places now. So I'm happy that you want to go to Howard. And so I went to Howard. And Charlotte, I think that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And uh, most of my best friends now are from Howard University College of Medicine. And I just, um, so then I did, my first rotation was psychiatry and I really didn't care for that. My second was internal medicine and no, I, I didn't like that either. And then my third rotation was pediatrics. And I said, wow, I could really get interested in pediatrics. And so when I did my pediatric residency, I, I kind of felt like being a general pediatrician might be kind of boring, you know, and just runny noses and ear infections. And so when I rotated on the hematology floor, that's when I kind of got interested in hematology and oncology. And as I mentioned, I started off with doing the fellowship and decided, you know, I, I went to nine funerals in, in, in a year and I spoke at three of them. And I just, it was not a good situation for me because as doctors, especially in that kind of area, you're supposed to learn this idea of detached concern where you can, you know, be concerned about the patient, but not get too attached. And I always felt like I got really attached to my patients, you know, and so I left the, um, I left the fellowship. And then I was, um, as I mentioned, working in the comprehensive sickle cell clinic. And uh, unfortunately, now, after 34 years, patients that I have taken care of from the time they were born until the time they turned 18 are now reaching the sickle cell lifespan, which is, you know, mid 40s to 50s. And so now I'm, I'm, I'm back to going to funerals. And I think, you know, now I'm going to funerals of patients that I took care of from the time they were born until they turned 18. It's a whole different experience, you know, and watching parents and grandparents bury their children. And I think, again, that's a part of what really motivates me in the work that I do now, because I think that we really have come a long way and the future is really bright in terms of sickle cell disease, but Charlotte, we still have a long ways to go. So, you know, I kind of feel myself 
as being one of the people in the trenches, you know, that are there with the patients, kind of with that struggle, putting one foot in front of the other to try to, you know, get through and make this, make the future brighter and, and, and to really brighten up the present, you know, because the present right now, particularly for adults, is, is not so great. You spoke about the lifespan of sickle cell patients and caring for them earlier on in their childhood to now uh, having to attend funerals. How do you manage and handle grief? Well, you know, that's a really good question. And I actually sought out help from a mental health professional um, because of the issues that I was having with grief and and losing patients. And um, I, I had a therapist, his name was Dr. Skirta. And one of the things that Dr. Skirta said to me, I, I think I said to him, what am I supposed to do with all these feelings, you know? And he said, well, Wanda, first of all, you have to have them, you know? And, and so one of the things that I do, you know, some people go to funerals, other people don't. Um, I, I go to funerals, you know? And I think it's a way of um, kind of having those feelings because they tend to be, especially in our community, tend to be uh, a little bit more emotional, you know. And and what I, I at funerals, I basically cry and feel sad, you know. And I'm not moaning or anything like that, but they're just kind of tears running down my face, and I feel like I'm having that feeling of sadness. And then once you have that sadness, then it gradually gets better, you know? And so I resort to my other things, you know, gardening or, you know, listening to music or reading an inspirational book or, you know, whatever. But um, that, that's kind of how I begin the grief process is, is by uh, going to the funeral and actually having feelings of sadness. It's interesting as you talked about the emotional side of dealing with sickle cell disease, particularly as a physician, because I think oftentimes when you think about the pain and the trauma and the stress of the illness, you think about it from the perspective of the patient and their families, but rarely do you hear it from the side of physician in the medical community. Mm -hmm. I know you've seen a lot throughout your childhood, especially with the work of your father, Dr. Charles Witten. Um, who's a pioneer in the sickle cell community. Do you have any stories that you would like to share in reference to any best lessons that he has taught you over the years? I think that just watching my father and listening to my father and watching watching um, the way he gave talks, you know, and the way he conceptualized things and the way he put things into motion, you know, but... Okay, so I, I, I'll tell you one story. You know, the very first paper that I presented um, at a scientific meeting, and I, I'll never forget it because it was with one of my heroes, which was Dr. Elliot Vachinsky. He's the one that introduced me to, to give the abstract. And uh, he's, he's another uh, true pioneer in sickle cell disease. And I was presenting, I was going to present this abstract. And uh, I was talking to my dad about it. And he said, now, Wanda, when you present this abstract, these are some of the questions that people are going to ask you, you know, and I said, okay, so he asked me the questions and a couple of them, I didn't know the answers to and I had to go and, and look up so I'd make sure I would have I would have the answers. And uh, Charlotte, when I presented that abstract, 
four doctors lined up at the microphone. And those four doctors asked me exactly the same questions that my father told me were going to be asked of me. Oh, wow. You know, and I, I just was like, you know, I, you know, I just always had my dad on a pedestal, but it's just like, wow, how did you know that? You know, and thank you so much because I would have been stumped for, uh, on a couple of those questions. Um, the other thing that my dad did was he put together a home study kit for families, right? And in it, there was, it, it, it really kind of looked like something that came out of a Cracker Jack box, you know, but it was a film strip that you could actually manipulate this little um, piece of equipment and then you would put the film strip in and it had a tape and you would look at the pictures and every time the, the tape beeped, you would go on to the next picture. And it showed you pictures of black blood vessels and pictures of sickle cells and showed you the genetics and all of that. It also had, there was a crossword puzzle, you know, to see if you could remember the things that you had learned. There was a set of dice with sickle eggs and normal eggs and sickle sperm and normal sperm so that you could look at the genetics and Prove that it was just like rolling the dice every time you had a baby because if both parents have sickle cell trait, there's a one out of four chance with each pregnancy, not, not just one out of four where if you have one baby, then you have to have three more before you have another that has sickle cells. So rolling the dice helps you to understand that, you know, Lady Luck has no memory, you know. And so I think that, you know, using all of that, then I later put together what I call a patient empowerment toolkit. You know, and I'm just channeling my father and what, what it, and it's kind of similar to um, if you're pregnant and you got this little bag packed so that whenever the time comes, you're ready to go to the hospital because you have everything in there that you need. So this backpack is for patients if they're traveling or just to have ready if they uh, have to go to the hospital. And it has a blanket and a thermometer and a water bottle and it has a pill uh, sorter so you can, you know, keep all your pills and try to remember, you know, to take them. But it also has this passport to health, which is something that you're supposed to fill out with your doctor or with your community health worker so that, you know, what I'm trying to do is help patients to be the kind of patient that a doctor wants to take care of. You know, because you go to the doctor's office and they start trying to take the history and you get confused, like, well, what medications are you on? Well, I take this little blue pill. You know, I don't want you to tell the doctors you take a little blue pill. I want you to know what the pill is, how to spell it, what dose you take it at, and why you're taking it. You know, all of those things are, are really important. When the doctor asks you what, ki- what type of sickle cell disease do you have, you really need to be able to say right away, SSSC or sickle thalassemia. What's your baseline hemoglobin? Oh, it's 9.7. You know, if... if um, a patient is um, in in the hospital and their hemoglobin is normally nine and now it's six, then I want the patients to know now, tell me what is my retic count because retic counts are young red blood cells. And if the retic count is good, that means that the body is trying to heal itself. You know, So there are things like that that help patients to be activated and informed and ready to participate in client-centered care. And I think that that sickle cell home study kit that my father did kind of carried over in me when I did the patient empowerment toolkit. And the other thing is that all of the graphics that he used, I mean, he put together his educational uh, sessions back in the 70s. So even though the graphics that I use are different now because, you know, we've, we've advanced so much, the concepts that are there are basically the concepts that my father laid. And, and he just had a way of, of building information. 
you know, let's start with what is hemoglobin, you know, and then what is the problem with hemoglobin and sickle cell disease? And, you know, it just is a nice, uh, and I always tell my families if they come to um, my educational session, um, they're going to, sometimes they're going to know more about sickle cell disease than the doctor sitting in front of them, depending on where they are, because that's how I feel like education is really empowering. And in Michigan, uh, we serve as the coordinating center for newborn screening for hemoglobinopathies or blood diseases. So we're the ones that get the test result initially and um, that the baby has sickle cell disease. And we're responsible, um, responsible for getting in touch with the mother and giving her that information and then bringing her into care, getting, her, getting the baby started on prophylactic penicillin, and then just following her, you know, um, as, as the baby grows up. So we have a really um, positive relationship with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, and they have a real concern for individuals living with sickle cell disease, and, and not just at birth, but through the lifespan. And in fact, they have developed a strategic plan to address sickle cell disease across the lifespan. So we've been very involved in trying to put that, uh, put that plan into action. It's interesting. When I asked you about your father, you primarily focused on him as a person, him as a leader, him as a role model, um, particularly just by his actions. And so there's a, a saying that you learn a lot about a person, not by what they say, but their actions. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was so creative and innovative. Mm -hmm. um, and so I commend you. And also just hearing that your father was doing this work just lets you know that the legacy continues. Oh, absolutely. I am trying my best to continue my father's legacy. And frequently when people say, oh, you're following in your father's footsteps, I take my shoe off and show them my foot is not quite that big. <laughs> you know? And, and I, I'll share with you that um, my dad, uh, his father died when he was eight years old, but, and his um, life insurance policy had lapsed. But both of my grandparents were college educated, as well as my Aunt Alice. And my Aunt Alice actually is the one that put my father through medical school. And my dad, he really felt as though he was privileged, you know? And he felt that there were Black students who would make good doctors yet for their circumstances. And so he went about the business of trying to change their circumstances. And he put together a program called the Post-Baccalaureate Program, the first of its kind at Wayne State University, which was a program where if you got rejected from Wayne State University School of Medicine, you could apply to this post-bac program and you would get a stipend because he didn't want you to work because he felt the reason some students didn't do as well is because they had to work full time. There were a lot of resources. There was study skills and there was tutoring and there were some uh, remedial classes and uh, if you maintained a B average in this program, at the end of the program, you were guaranteed admissions into Wayne State University College of Medicine. Now, during the time that he ran the program, Wayne State University graduated more black doctors than any other school besides Howard, of course, where I went, and Meharry, where he went. So I, I feel like that was really, and you know, it just, what, what, what my, my dad did just was so far reaching, you know, because I remember going to um, 
the graduation party for some for a student who had graduated from medical school through my dad's program. So it took five years. And just being in the community and seeing the other kids and other family members and cousins and so forth, saying, oh, here's a doctor now in our family. And that just, you know, that just lets people know if she can do it, I can do it, you know. And the other really fascinating thing about that is one of the patients that I took care of from the time she was born until she turned 18 and is now doing well and is married and has two children. And she, um, of course, is living with sickle cell disease and is currently enrolled in my dad's post-baccalaureate program. So it's like the two things really came together rather miraculously for one patient, you know, that are getting the benefit, both of the benefits of my father's life changing uh, programs, you know, so I just really feel as though, you know, he really, he really changed the world, you know, and so I just, um, yeah, I I think, um, yeah, he he was remarkable. And um, there are a lot of days where I wish I could say, I could ask him, you know, dad, what should I do about this? You know, and I have a portrait of him in the front lobby. And uh, sometimes when I leave in the evening, I say goodbye to him. So I hope in some way, you know, the energy in the universe is letting him know that, um, you know, that I'm working hard and trying to live up to his expectations. A lot of times we don't think about the connections that take place in the lifespan. And also we don't see the fruits of our labor, but the fact that you were able to witness what your father was doing, the fact that your, your sister is a psychologist, um, all the remarkable things that your father did is, it's amazing. And, um, and so bringing it back to the work, tell me about the process in which um, a patient uh, has a child with sickle cell disease, what's the next steps after that? Okay, so we get a notification from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services that the baby has only fetal hemoglobin and sickle hemoglobin on newborn screening. And so the state requires that we do a confirmatory test. So we uh, send a letter to the mother and we send a letter to the doctor and we explain that the baby had an abnormal hemoglobin screen that was positive for sickle cell disease and we want her to be in touch with us. And so frequently the the mother is not in touch with us and we end up calling the mother, you know. So for a long time in the Detroit metropolitan area, I was the one who would do the initial outreach to the mother. And that initial phone call um, frequently was like, went like this. Hi, Ms. Jones. My name is Dr. Sherney and um, I'm calling to give you some information about your baby's newborn screen for blood diseases. Did you know the babies were screened for blood diseases at birth? And she would say, no, I didn't know that. I said, well, your baby's test result came back positive for sickle cell disease. And she would say, oh, no, Dr. Sherney, that can't be because I have the trait, but the father doesn't. And I would say, well, how do you know the father doesn't have sickle cell traits? She would say, because I asked him or I asked his mother, you know, and I'm like, okay, so that is not necessarily uh, correct, that information, and we really need to do a test and that sickle cell trait doesn't cause any symptoms and probably the baby's father might not even have known what sickle cell trait was. And so instead of saying, what is that? He said, no, I don't have that. Or maybe he thought it was a disease that would make him sick and he would have to know, you know, and that kind of thing. 
And and that, you know, the idea of having a stranger call your house when the baby is two weeks old and has 10 fingers and 10 toes and you're looking at a perfectly healthy, happy looking baby and then have a stranger tell you that they have what is in your mind such a dev devastating disease, it's just a really a shock to the family. And, and I think that a lot of times um, parents go through uh, stages of death and dying like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, you know? And of course, the first one is denial, you know, and so I'm in the middle in the process of trying to, you know, get a confirmatory test and get the baby on penicillin because we know that giving penicillin twice a day will dramatically decrease the chances of the baby getting a very serious infection. And she's busy trying to, you know, reassure herself that I'm wrong. And the fact that I need a confirmatory test also proves that this might be wrong, you know, so it kind of takes a while and it's a process and, and the parents go through a, a grieving process, you know. And so that and so once that happens, then we if they're in Detroit, we refer them to uh, Children's Hospital Comprehensive Sickle Cell Clinic where they can get their routine pediatric care as well as specialized sickle cell care. But we have a statewide program, so we have patient advocates strategically placed in areas of high-risk populations so that we can reach all of the families of, of, of children that have sickle cell disease. And then we bring them in for two educational sessions. And in Detroit, I would do a group education, you know, which I thought was really nice. It would be hard for me to educate everybody individually. And so we bring them into our building and we would, you know, feed them chicken wings and macaroni and cheese and chocolate chip cookies and fruit punch and do a PowerPoint presentation. And, you know, it would be very interactive and people would stop and ask questions and, you know, they would meet each other. Sometimes mothers would exchange phone numbers and we would tell them about our parent support group and that kind of thing. So we get them through the educational process and then get them into uh, medical care. Um, and, and so that's why, you know, the, the primary mission of our organization is to maximize the quality of life of individuals living with sickle cell disease. But our second mission is to help individuals who have sickle cell trait make informed decisions that they believe are in their best interest with respect to childbearing. And so what I want is for nobody to have a baby with sickle cell disease by accident, only by choice knowing the challenges that they might face. And a lot of times that is just not the case. And I feel like um, when mothers who didn't know they were at risk for having a child with sickle cell disease, uh, when, they, when they find out the baby has sickle cell disease, there's a fair amount of guilt that's associated with quote unquote, giving your baby this disease that you didn't even know that you could give your baby. So I think if you know ahead of time, and mind you, the way I wanna, wipe sickle cell disease off the face of the earth is with a cure, you know? Uh, but I do want to offer the family, the all, let them know what all their options are if both parents have the trait or if they're at risk for having a child with sickle cell disease so that they can make the decision that they feel is best for their family. Would you recommend that more people do genetic testing prior to having a child? Absolutely. Yeah, you want to know what gene do you have on both sides so that you can at least be prepared. And that's not necessarily to say that you're going to break up, you know, if you if both parents have sickle cell trait or if one parent has the disease and the other parent has the trait. But it's just so you know ahead of time so you can make some informed decisions. When a parent learns that their child has sickle cell disease, what are the two top questions that you usually get in reference to caring for a child with 
Um, well, for the mother, it's usually, um, is my child going to die? You know, that's their biggest concern is that the baby's, baby's going to die. Uh, from fathers, I frequently get more like how normal a life will my child be able to live? You know, will he be able to play football? Will he be able to play basketball? You know, is he going to be able to do the things that his cousins and brothers and sisters do? And, and then there, when, when we talk about pain, there's a lot of fear of pain. And when is the first pain attack going to occur? And what do I do when my child is in pain? And how am I going to know if my child is having pain when they're so young and they can't talk? Those are, those are um, some of the really frequent questions. So speaking of which, how early can a child experience symptoms of sickle cell disease? A couple of things about that. Um, I, you know, I'm not a really big statistics doctor, okay, because statistics are important for me because I see a lot of patients, but each family has one, maybe two, maybe three children with sickle cell disease. And what's important to them is what happens with their particular child. You know, and if there's a one in a million chance of something bad happening and it happens, then it doesn't matter that it was only a one in a million chance, because at that point, it's 100 percent for that particular family. So I, I mentioned that in newborn screening for the most common type of sickle cell disease, the test result that we get back is F is in Frank, S is in Sam. So the baby has mostly what we call baby blood or fetal hemoglobin and then has sickle hemoglobin. Now, gradually, as the baby grows, that fetal hemoglobin is going to decrease and the sickle hemoglobin is going to increase. And we do know that that fetal hemoglobin offers some level of protection um, to, from the symptoms of sickle cell disease and the complications of sickle cell disease. In fact, one of my uh, most important mentors, Dr. Frempong from Ghana, speaks says that kids with sickle cell disease are born with a cure, you know, and that's fetal hemoglobin. And the fetal hemoglobin, though, gradually goes away. So what I tell parents is that it's very unusual for a baby that's less than three months old to have any problems from their sickle cell disease, you know. And I also tell them you can't just treat the baby like a China doll, you know, and you can't just spend all of your time looking for complications of sickle cell disease. And that children with sickle cell disease are, are sick from time to time. They're not sick all the time. And it's very important that you not treat them like they're sick when they're not, when they're doing well, because then they will grow up with the, well, I'm sorry, an ill mentality rather than a well mentality. So um, the other part of that is that there's this thing, and I'm going to just say it, it's called phenotypic heterogeneity. And what it really means is that every child with sickle cell disease is different. And sickle cell disease, this characteristic is, is, is at such an extreme with sickle cell disease. You know, I see some kids that do extremely well and some kids that have a lot of trouble with their sickle cell disease. And another interesting thing is that sometimes there could be a brother, sister, or two, uh, two siblings in a family and one of the children does well and the other child has problems and they have the same genes and they're living in the same environment. So we, we don't really understand a lot about what causes sickle cell disease to be worse in one patient than it is in another. So one of the things that I really emphasize when I'm doing my educational sessions is that I don't have a crystal ball 
So I can't tell you which complication your child might have or when the complications are going to start. What I have to do is prepare you by letting you know what all the complications are and how you would recognize them and what you would do about them. And then you have to kind of, you know, as hard as it may seem, try to put that in the back of your mind and go ahead and live your life and deal with sickle cell complications when they arise and not get ahead of yourself, you know, and not stay stressed out constantly about sickle cell disease. And so in terms of recognizing when the child is in pain, you know, one of the things that I say to families is that you don't have to go looking for sickle cell pain. Sickle cell pain is going to come and find you. And, you know, some babies that are less than three months old might have what we call colic. My, my daughter had it. Scream at the top of their lungs for hours on end and we can't figure out why, you know, and my daughter didn't have, doesn't have sickle cell disease. I have the trait, but she doesn't even have sickle cell trait. And so, but as babies get a little bit older, more towards six months of age, there's a different kind of cry. You know, babies cry when they're hungry. They cry if they want to be held. They cry if they're sleepy. But a pain cry is a different kind of cry. And it goes on for a longer period of time. And then I tell parents, as they get older, you know, there may be some swelling in the hands and feet. Maybe that they were walking really well. And then all of a sudden they don't, they don't seem want to want to put uh, weight on their feet, and maybe they're having a pain episode in their feet, or maybe you're taking off their snowsuit jacket and you grab their elbow and they cry and you think, oh, maybe this is a pain episode that's happening in the elbow. So I can't really tell them exactly how they're going to know. But I tell them that you don't have to be a doctor, you don't have to be a nurse, you have to be an informed caregiver. And that's what parents are becoming when they come to two educational sessions and ask all their follow-up questions. And then as they come to the clinic, we continue to try to add on to the education that they get. So we try to help families to be as prepared as possible for you know this challenge that they're gonna face. And then all children have challenges and this is just a challenge, an extra challenge that, that the child living with sickle cell disease is, is going to face and have to overcome. Is there anything that you see that's common or that you used to see that's common with parents that um, you think would be helpful for our audience to know? Okay, so for me, I think the most common mistake that I see is that number one, um, fever is an emergency in a child with sickle cell disease because they're susceptible to infection, right? But pain is not. So if you think the child is having pain, what's the first thing you wanna do and the answer is take the child's temperature. Because if the child is having pain, a fair amount of sickle cell pain can be managed at home. And I really know that as patients become adults, they really try to manage as much pain as possible at home because they know when they go to the emergency room, there's gonna be a long wait time and there's a good chance that there's gonna be a doctor there who's not gonna believe them and that they're going to be mistreated in the emergency room. So um, I want parents to try to manage pain at home as long as the child doesn't have a fever. The other thing that happens, though, is that the child gets a fever and they decide, OK, I'm going to give a dose of Motrin. I'm going to give a dose of Tylenol and see what happens. And that is absolutely the wrong thing to do because the child needs to come in. We need to do a blood culture. We need to send it to the lab and we need to make sure that this is just a viral illness and this isn't that really... Uh, important pneumococcal germ that can be so devastating because, you know, before the penicillin prophylaxis study, 
there would be a child that come to the emergency room dead on arrival, you know, and people would be talking about calling protective services because, well, what was the family doing when this child was getting so sick? Then on autopsy, they would find out the child had sickle cell disease and they would say, oh, no, it wasn't that the family was negligent. It was just that this happened so rapidly that by the time the child looked sick, they don't have a chance to get them to the emergency room. And that's why it's called overwhelming pneumococcal sepsis. It just overwhelms the child. So I think one of the most important things that I want to make sure that people recognize and understand is that a fever is an emergency in a child with sickle cell disease and demands immediate medical attention until we can prove that it's really just a viral illness and not just and not that devastating uh, pneumococcal. I personally know that staying hydrated um, was extremely important to me as a child, but also as an adult. Mm -hmm. Are there any other things that you think um, caregivers need to know in reference to caring for children with sickle cell disease? Yeah. Well, you know, when you ask me that, I have to say that maybe it's a little bit more important for the child with sickle cell disease to eat a healthy, have a healthy diet. But I mean, let's, let's face it, it's important for everybody in the family to eat mm -hmm. a diet, you know? And is it a little bit more important that when it's freezing cold outside, the child with sickle cell disease has on a hat and gloves and thick socks and layers to keep them warm? Yes, because a big change in temperature can pre precipitate a pain episode. But it's important for everybody to dress properly for the weather. You know, so I just basically say other than the hydration, you know, which is, is so important. And one of the things that I, you know, I, I refer to my patients as snowflakes because every snowflake is different and every patient with sickle cell disease is different. But one of the things that you see in almost every patient at a very early age is that they drink a lot and they urinate a lot, you know? And so usually staying hydrated when you're well is not so much of a problem because it's driven by thirst. But sometimes when kids get sick and they're having a pain episode, you know, they don't want to drink anymore. And that's when it's real, that's when it's most important to drink and stay well hydrated because you can imagine we've got this disease of blocked blood vessels but then you're making the blood thicker by getting dehydrated. So that just makes things worse. So when I'm at, you know, sickle cell conventions and places where I see other, other warriors, as um, a lot of individuals refer to themselves as warriors, and I think it's an appropriate term, um, they always have water bottles and they're always constantly drinking, you know, and I think that that, that is probably the single most important thing that you can do when you're living with sickle cell disease is to stay, stay well hydrated and make sure you're getting your routine medical care, both from a specialized sickle cell standpoint and from a regular pediatric or internal medicine standpoint that you're taking care of all aspects of your health. One of the other areas that I wanted to discuss was transition programs. And so I was fortunate that I went to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, where I received the best care. And for that very reason, I was sad when I had to transition. And so I know that's a dilemma that a lot of patients face. Well, yeah, I've kind of talked about it a little bit. It is a problem and it has been a problem, you know, since ever since I can remember. And again, a, a big part of the problem is the lack of knowledgeable healthcare providers, you know, that, that do adult care. And um, I have had patients call hematology uh, clinics 
or program practices and ask for an appointment. And they would say, well, what's your diagnosis? And when there's say sickle cell disease, they, they say, we don't see patients with sickle cell disease, you know? And uh, once again, finding primary care docs. Uh, and and I, a part of the problem was back in the 70s, patients weren't living to adulthood, you know? And so the docs didn't get the experience of seeing the patients the way the, um, the pediatric hematology and oncology fellows got to see sickle cell disease because the patients would die, you know? Now that they're living longer, we know they're living longer, but you know, our goal is to help them to live better. And so we need, we need that good care. And, and I really, you know, I have a slide that I use in some of my talks where I type in in the little Google box, um, let's Google, because people don't use dictionaries anymore, let's Google healthcare disparity, right? So I type in healthcare disparity and I click enter, and what pops up is a man living with sickle cell disease next to a woman with cystic fibrosis, you know? And if you look at the resources that are available for our patients, they just aren't many, you know? And once again, things are getting better, but um, they, we, 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 still, we still have a long ways to go. Um, and that's a part of why I developed that patient empowerment toolkit that I was mentioning to you. And uh, one of the things that's in there and the patients get them at the time of transition is um, the American Society of Hematology has put together brochures on management, routine healthcare maintenance, on transfusions and on hydroxyurea. And so that I think the American Society of Hematology or ASH as they're known uh, develop those brochures to distribute to doctors, but you don't know which doctor is going to see which patient, right? And so my thought was to give them to the patient when they go see the doctor, and when the doctor sits down in front of the patient and looks them in the eye and tells them what many patients have told me they've been told, I really don't know how to take care of you. Then you can say, here, doc, here's how you take care of me, and give them these brochures, you know, these little trifolds that help you to understand how to actually take care of a patient with sickle cell disease. But um, in Michigan, 75% uh, of the individuals living with sickle cell disease live in the Detroit metropolitan area and Ann Arbor. And uh, we don't, we have the adult clinic at Wayne State University is severely under-resourced. And so one of the things that we're working toward now is trying to establish a true medical home for adults living with sickle cell disease, where they can get primary care as well as specialized sickle cell care, as well as mental health support and psychosocial support. And there are a few places around the country uh, that have that. Jim Ekman uh, started a program like that in Atlanta. Um, Julie Cantor, even though she's a pediatric hematologist, sees adults now, um, I believe in Alabama. And um, Bree Andamariam has a program in Connecticut. So just to name a few, you know, so we're really looking at trying to do something like that for our adults so that the main problem with transition is they don't have a place to transition to, you know, so you can get them already. But if you don't have anywhere to send them, then they end up basically getting their care in the emergency room, which is expensive care and, and poor care. For when you say there needs to be more physicians, do you mean more hematologists? I mean doctors and I mean mid-level providers, physician extenders. You know, Dr. Wally Smith out of Virginia is an internal medicine doc, but he is absolutely a sickle cell expert. 
So you don't have to be a hematologist. And um, at Johns Hopkins, there's Sophie Lanspron. And she has a program where you could come and spend a month with her and learn how to manage uh, adults with sickle cell disease. And um, Dr. Elliot Baczynski, who I mentioned earlier, um, has a, a sickle cell boot camp. And there are other programs in California where you can actually take online some specialty courses. The problem is getting people interested early, you know, and, and this is something. And, and I, I think the other thing that's important is that a lot of times medical students and, and residents see individuals living with sickle cell disease when they're at their worst, you know, and they don't know how, but how much you can get from taking care of these patients and how inspiring they are. And even when I did my uh, fellowship and I was up on the floors and patients are stressed out, parents are stressed out. Sometimes they're angry about things that are going on. And then you see them in the outpatient clinic and it's like a whole different family, you know, yeah. it's a whole different child. It's like, oh, I don't think I liked you so much when you were on the floor. I like you now, you know. So I, I think that that's a, that's a part of the problem, too. I wish that they could get exposure to our families when they're when they're doing well. And not just when they're when they're under that uh, terrible stress or in terrible pain. Is there anything that you would like to leave our audience with? You know, uh, I'll, I'll say this. Uh, one thing is that I'm looking here. I'm sitting in my office, and I'm looking at a picture of myself next to Dr. Donald Rucknagel, who was an adult hematologist that took care of a lot of patients with sickle cell disease. A very good friend of my father's. And um, he, I, I talk to him about once a month now, he's 92 and still living independently and doing well. And he was the author on a paper that proved that using an incentive spirometer would decrease the chances of a patient getting acute chest syndrome when they're on narcotics and have, you know, not, not taking good deep breaths and can get collapses in the lung called atelectasis, which can later lead to acute chest syndrome. And when my patients call me, when my adult patients call me to tell me that they're in the hospital, I, I say, what's my first question? And they'll say, do you have an incentive spirometer? And then what is my second question? Are you using it? You know, so I think that, you know, of course, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I always want to make sure that people are remembering. That's one of the things that's in my patient empowerment toolkit is an incentive spirometer. Acute chest syndrome is a horrible complication that tends to be recurrent and people end up sometimes being oxygen dependent when they've had recurrent episodes of acute chest syndrome. So that would be, um, you know, one word of advice I'd like to give as a final thought. And then I guess the other thing that I would like to say is how grateful I am to the, the sickle cell community because um, just being able to have the kind of career that I've had and the people that I've met, you know, whether it be warriors or nurses or doctors or social workers, you know, it's just been a very exciting and fulfilling uh, career for me. And I just uh, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Sickle Cycle Podcast.